what does your Sunday morning typically look like? If you're going to church, um, what does it look like to prepare to go and to worship with God's people? I know for me and my family, uh, I prepare for Sunday service because I'm usually preaching and my wife is left to take care of the kids and do everything else. And so it's hard. It's hard when you have a family and you're trying to chase down kids and get them ready and get yourself ready. It's hard to really focus your heart before you come to worship with God's people. Well, this psalm gives us kind of an inside look at, at how we should be preparing for worship. And I think it has some really practical insights for us and ultimately will point us to, to Jesus. That's what this psalm is all about. The format of this psalm might be linked back to a ritual where the priest is talking to a worshiper who's come to the temple and there's sort of this back and forth. So some of the, some scholars think this is what's happening here. And the question at the beginning is essentially, what do I need to do to enter into worship, to enter into the temple? And instead of just giving him rituals to perform, the answer here has to do with the heart of the worshiper, the kind of person that you should be, that you need to be to be in the presence of God. So we can't be sure this is how this was used, but we can definitely see a lot of practical advice in this short psalm. So we're, we're going to see what a heart looks like that is devoted to God, that is prepared to worship God. So this psalm is, is pretty simple in its structure. The first part is the question. So Psalm 15, 1, the question. And the big question is, how does someone have to live and have to act to dwell with God? Look at verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? So the verbs here refer to living with someone. So sojourn is speaking about living with someone as a guest, which fits with that word tent, which is a temporary dwelling. But it's all it's, it's at the permission of somebody else that you're dwelling with them is the idea. And then dwell, that second word, is to settle. So these two words refer to coming and to living with God as someone who doesn't belong there is kind of the idea. And then we see where he wants to dwell with God. First, he mentions the tent, which probably refers to the tabernacle, which was that original place of worship, that, that mobile um, tent uh, that be, later became the, t- the uh, permanent temple. And then he says the holy hill, God's holy hill. So this again reinforces that temple imagery because the holy hill we've seen refers to Jerusalem, refers to probably the temple. So God is going to be the host for man. And that's why we have this picture of the tabernacle or the temple, because that was sort of the house of God was the idea and the place where God would welcome people into communion with him. In fact, there was even in the tabernacle, in the temple, there was always fresh baked bread which I always love as a picture of hospitality, right? That God is welcoming people to his table of fellowship is sort of the idea. So we, we have the question, which is how can we dwell with God? And we're, we're left hanging. And we see, you know, in the Old Testament, we see even in the structure of the tabernacle and the temple, we see that there's a tension here, that it's hard to approach God, that it's difficult. And there's all these rituals to come before God. The structure of the, of, the, of the tabernacle and the temple, as we've covered in other videos on the Old Testament law, the structure essentially communicated that you know someone was was uh, separated from God. So the first place you'd come into would be the outer court, and you'd be standing on the dirt, and it would be this picture of the earthly realm. There'd be a big basin of water. There'd be a 
altar of sacrifice. And in order for the, someone to go into the temple, for the priest to go into the temple, they would have to sacrifice and cleanse themselves to approach the temple of God. And in the temple, it was a picture of the heavens. So there was the colors of the heavens, there was the lights, there was the bread, which was the manna that fell from the skies. All these pictures were kind of of someone ascending to God. And then the final room was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, where the high priest could only enter one time of year. And that was a picture of the heaven of heavens, right, of God's throne itself. And so this entire structure reminded people that there's a way you have to approach God. He, he deserves to be approached carefully by us as worshipers. So we have the question first, and then the rest of the psalm gives us the answer. Verses 2 to 5 give us the answer. Or we're going to say verse 6 as well, but um, verse 5, or verse 2. So what kind of person can dwell with God? What kind of person can dwell with God? Well, there's 10 or 11 statements about this person's character. I'm sorry, I was looking at the wrong psalm, so I got confused there. Um, there are only five verses in this psalm. So what kind of person can dwell with God? There's, there's 10 or 11 statements about the character of this person. At 10 or 11, depending on how you understand verse 5, because verse 5, you could take that first part as being kind of one characteristic with two parts. doesn't matter that much. But So really what, how the structure is there's three positive statements, three negative statements, two more positive statements, and two more negative statements. And together they equal 10 statements about what this person should be. So first we see this person has to be a person of strong character. Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So blameless refers to wholeness or soundness of character. So this is someone who walks consistently with God, who does the right thing all the time, consistently, day in and day out. They do, he, he does what is right. So this is very simple and comprehensive. This is someone who walks in integrity and in righteousness. It's, it's the same kind of language that was used uh, in Genesis 6-9 of Noah, where it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So he's a righteous and he is blameless. He is whole. He is sound in his character. So this is the kind of person that can approach the throne of God. So they're, they, they're blameless. They do what is right. Those are the first two statements. And then it says they speak the truth in their heart. Speaks the truth in his heart. So this is the opposite of Psalm 14.1, where the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The righteous person, this person who can, who can approach God and dwell with God, is somebody who speaks the truth in their heart. They love the truth. They believe the truth. They operate on the basis of the truth, and therefore they only ever speak the truth. And that leads into the second aspect of this person. So first we see it has to be a person of strong character, and second, it has to be a person of sound speech. So the way this person speaks also matters. Look at verse 3. Who does not slander with his tongue, who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So we started with three positive statements in verse 2, and now we have three negative statements here. What he does not do. And what he does not do is he does not compromise in terms of speech. So first, he does not slander. That slandering is the idea of, of gossiping. Literally, that word for slander is the word for spying something or spying something out. It's the same word. I was surprised at this, but it's the same word used over and over 
in Genesis 42 when Joseph is accusing his brothers of being spies. This is the word he uses. It's the same word used when Joshua sends the spies into Canaan. So it really literally means spying. And it has the idea in terms of day-to-day language, it has the idea of trying to find out certain things about people, trying to spy certain things out in order to spread them in a way that's harmful. That's what gossip is. Right? It's finding out things that are none of your business so that you can share them and in a destructive way. And we've seen in the previous Psalms just how destructive speech can be, just how harmful uh, speech can be. In James 3, we see that speech is so important that it actually, if you can be perfect in your speech, you're in a sense per, a perfect person. James 3, 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So James is not saying here that if you you know, use good speech, that no other sin matters. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if somebody could control their tongue, that's a person who's fully in control of everything. Because the tongue, in other words, is the hardest thing to control. That's the idea. So he's not somebody who slanders. He's not someone who does evil to his neighbor, nor, it says, does he take up a reproach against his friend. That idea of taking up a reproach is um, casting a slur. Derek Kidner says it's casting a slur or it's picking up something discreditable about somebody else. So the way this person speaks is always sound. They don't use their words to destroy or to harm or to spread lies. Look at verse 4. It says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, and swears to his own hurt and does not change. So not only are they, you know, just somebody who has strong character and sound speech, but also they have secure loyalty. They have the right kind of loyalty towards people in their lives. So when it talks about how they hate the, the evil person and they honor those who fear the Lord, this isn't about just how they you know, pick friends for their own benefit. It's, it's not about putting someone else down to feel better about yourself. It's not saying, oh, that person is so evil, I'm so good. What it's talking about here is about having an allegiance to righteousness, uh, aligning yourself and having loyalty to what God cares about. And we, we saw in Psalm 5, 4 that God hates the wicked, that sin is an abomination to God. And so we have to also turn away from sin. So our allegiance has to be with God. We should want to lift up those who are practicing righteousness and to correct those who are living in sin. So this doesn't mean at all that we should you know, not be with people who are sinful and not share the gospel with them, but it's speaking to the posture of our heart. It speaks to our companionship, who's going to influence us the most. And then it says that he's also someone who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Swearing to your own hurt is kind of an interesting language. It might not be familiar for you. The NIV translates this, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Who keeps his oath even when it hurts. So that's a great translation, kind of get capturing the idea. It's saying you do what you've promised to do, even if it hurts you, even if it's difficult. And of course, there are instances where you could still negotiate or someone could release you from your oath or your promise. But it's, you know, if that's not the case, you stick to what you said. You do what you've promised to do. Be a person of your word. That's the idea. And there may be times in your life when it's beneficial to you to not do something that you've promised. 
uh, uh, this kind of person, the righteous person, does what they've said they will do no matter what. Look at verse 5. It says, Who does not put out his money at interest, does not take a bribe against the innocent, he, does, he who does these things shall never be moved. So not only are they is you know you're you're blameless you're a righteous person you have good character you speak well you you um, you're loyal to what God is loyal to but you also handle your money well or you handle money in a way that honors God and takes care of others you don't you don't you're not corrupt in the way you handle money now when it talks about don't put your money out at interest is it saying it's bad for us to lend money well not for Christians today. It's not a bad thing to have interest on a loan that you've given. Okay, so that's that's not a law for us today, but it was a law in the Old Testament that if you lent money to a fellow Jew, you could not have interest on it. If it was a foreigner, you could. But the idea here is that if somebody is in a position where they have to take a loan, they must be desperate for money. So it's not speaking to someone who maybe wants a business loan to expand their, their operations or something like that. This is speaking to somebody who needs money to survive. And he's saying, you don't you don't lend money to someone who's in need just so you can profit off of them. You shouldn't be thinking that way. You should be thinking about how you can be generous and help them. We see the same kind of mindset from from Jesus in Luke chapter six, verses thirty five to thirty six, uh, which you can look up if you want to. But so so don't try to make money off those who are needy, and also don't take bribes. Bribes go against justice. They undermine justice. They pervert and subvert justice because it, uh, it makes someone think in terms of what someone has, who that person is, what they can give them instead of what is actually true and right. And so God says the righteous person cannot do these things. And the ending is interesting because it ends kind of abruptly here with verse five. The ending says, he who does these things shall never be moved. This verse ends with the assurance of stability for this person. It sounds a lot like Psalm 1, right? Again, we keep coming back to Psalm 1 and 2, but it sounds a lot like Psalm 1, right? That person who is who's rooted by streams of water, who is stable, who's bearing fruit. In the same way, there's stability and security for God's people. And so if you, if you live this kind of lifestyle, you will never be moved. Psalm 46, 1 and 2 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. So we don't have to fear because we're, we're, we're not going to be moved, right? Everything else could be moved. The mountains could fall away, but not us. We're secure. And so if you live this kind of way, you have security. So there's a, quite a few implications of this uh, psalm. One is, that's so important, is we don't get to worship God on our own terms. We don't get to come to God in the way that we think we should be able to come to God. And that's so important because often I think in, in our, the way worship is done in our modern day, it's so much about our preferences. What kind of music do we want to hear? What kind of sermon do we want to hear? And we often don't think about the person that we're actually serving when we come to worship which is not ourselves, it's God, right? We're singing praise to him, we're learning about him so we can honor him, so we can serve him with our hands in better ways. So worship is all about him, so he gets to define how he's worshiped. And this means that our holiness matters, that your growth in Christ's likeness and following after him, it matters. And of course, this psalm 
says very, you know, very brief amount on this topic. But I think that the idea is the same as what Martin Luther said, where he said, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. So we may be saved by faith and we're going to get there in terms of Jesus, right? But it's important to remember that if we're saved by faith, we're going to be a different kind of person. We have to pursue Christ-likeness. This psalm reminds us that God loves the truth and he hates falsehood, that we should live in the truth and we should speak in a way to build people up and not to gossip and slander and tear people down. Now, the biggest thing, biggest takeaway for me when I read this passage is to think, if this is true, I don't deserve to approach God. I, I haven't done all these things perfectly. Right, And I think that's putting it lightly and probably the same for you. You'd say, if you look at this list of commands, I'm not this kind of person all the time. Maybe on my best day, I could be like this, but not all the time. So, And that's a right response to, to reading a passage like this, is to think, this is beyond my ability to do. So what do we do with that? Well, I think as much as this tells us about our own uh, uh, you know, way of living and how to approach God, also, the, the person that can dwell with God has already been referenced in the book of Psalms. If you go back again, you won't be surprised, but Psalm chapter 2, we've already seen who it is that can dwell with God. We've already seen who it is that God's going to set on his holy hill, and that's his king. It's the Messiah. So the one we're looking for who can approach and who can dwell with God is the Messiah, the king. And in fact, this Psalm introduces a whole section of Psalms from 15 to 24, which are just fantastic Psalms. We're going to dig into a lot more in coming weeks. But the the last Psalm in that series is Psalm 24. And Psalm 24 kind of asks the same question. In Psalm 24, 3, it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer that's given is essentially the one who is pure, the one who is holy, and then it says in verse 8, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. So who's the one who can approach? Well, it's going to be God himself. So we only have, again, a hint here, but the, the true one who can fulfill all of this is not you or me, it's Jesus Christ. And so I think we have to read this psalm in light of Psalm 65, where it says this. It says, Psalm 65, 3, it says, when iniquities prevail against me, You atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. So this psalm reminds us, it's using the same idea of dwelling with God. But it reminds us the one who can dwell with God is the one who's forgiven by God, whose sins are atoned for, and that happens through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And it's through the one who is chosen by God. The only reason that we can know or love God or be with him in eternity is because God has chosen us in his infinite kindness and mercy and grace. He's chosen us to be with him. So this psalm, it gives us some great instructions, but it also, most importantly, points us to Jesus Christ and his salvation.